few verses of Acts, the first four verses, and then we will take up the rest of that chapter uh, as we work through the sermon today. Hear now God's word. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. We began this series of sermons actually last year. We began in Luke, uh, the 24th chapter, which was immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. And then we just continued that story and followed it into Acts, which is also, as mentioned this morning in Sunday school, written by Luke, where we have seen how the resurrected Jesus has continued to work through his church and through his people, through his body. Jesus told his disciples then in the first chapter of Acts, uh, Acts 1-8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then, we, as we began through the book of Acts, we saw right away on the day of Pentecost, after Peter's first sermon, there to the Jews who had gathered there, uh, 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. Soon, that was soon followed by the Samaritans, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Saul of Tarsus, the Gentile centurion Cornelius, and the mixed crowd at Antioch. And so the circle of the gospel we see expanding over and over and over, reaching further and further out. In chapter 13, the chapter after the one we're going to look at today, Luke will describe the first missionary journey. So we're going to go to even further to the remotest parts of the earth. But before that, in chapter 12, he describes what seems to be a major setback, which is the death of James and the imprisonment and impending death of Peter, two apostles and leaders of the church in Jerusalem. This won't be the first time leaders have tried to stamp out God's people, and it won't be the last. The death of James is the only recorded death of one of the twelve apostles, and James was probably still a young man, maybe probably in his 30s. Acts 12 describes the vicious and the tyrannical assault on the work of God by Herod Agrippa I. And if we put ourselves in that in the place of the Christian church at this time, you can imagine that this is perceived of as the greatest crisis since the death of the Lord himself. Many of us think and feel that our world is in a crisis and that threats are mounting. The clash between the world and the kingdom of God continues. 
we should be grateful that God has revealed to us in his word how the story ends. Not only this story in Acts 12, but our story as well. In Acts 12, this would turn out to be a showdown between two kings, King Jesus and King Herod, two kingdoms. We, and so Jesus and Herod, this is really Jesus and Herod in a way, part three. Um, remember Herod the Great? Associated with the Christmas story, he tried to have Jesus killed as an infant. He was going to round up all those boys under two, and he failed. Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, Jesus called him the fox, had John the Baptist killed, and then ultimately had to deal with Jesus himself. Ultimately, this Herod was one of the co-conspirators who carried out the condemnation and the execution of Jesus And on Easter morning, we found out that he too failed. And now, Herod Agrippa I, he will take his shot at Jesus, that is, the church, and he too will fail. These Herods apparently are slow learners. Now later, we will see Herod Agrippa II in the book of Acts, He's the one that interviewed the Apostle Paul along with uh, Porcius Festus. Um, and, and when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea after Paul's third missionary journey, you remember what he said to Paul? You almost persuade me to become a Christian. So the power of the gospel is increasing and expanding The Acts 12 story, though, is an echo of other stories that we find in the Bible. It reminds us of other similar events that recall the power of God to rescue his people, a power that is demonstrated repeatedly in the past. You recall that Jesus warned his disciples in Luke 21:12. He said, they will lay hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and the prisons and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. We should recall two stories, I think, in particular. The exodus from Egypt and the arrest and the trial of Jesus. So again, back to verses 1 through 4. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Luke makes a point uh, that the arrest of Peter took place during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he refers to Passover in the next verse. So this draws our attention to the connection between Peter's arrest and Jesus' arrest at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Like the story of Jesus, Herod intended to bring Peter before the people 
after the Passover. The reference to the days of unleavened bread and Passover also suggests the exodus from Egypt, which draws our attention to the significance of Peter's rescue. There are three common phrases found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in connection with the exodus, which concern the mistreatment of God's people, God's rescue, and then God's bringing his people out. And so God brought out Israel from the house of bondage, and now he is going to bring out the apostle Peter from Herod's prison. Like many politicians, Herod wanted to preserve the peace of Rome and Palestine by currying favor with the Jews. Sounds to me like President Biden and his executive decision on abortion, which is simply there to curry favor, political favor, and to exchange that for political power. Some things never change. Herod was even careful to observe Jewish law. He was trying to to pander to his supporters. He was persecuting the church in order to ingratiate himself with them, and so he has James beheaded. And you'll recall that Jesus had warned James and John when they had asked if they could sit on his right hand and his left hand in the kingdom. Jesus said in Mark 10, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And so James is now the first fulfillment of that. The execution of James delighted the Jews, and so Herod thought he would do it again with Peter. And so Peter was immediately arrested. And again, the fact that this occurred on the, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread... Uh, immediately uh, following Passover. It's an important detail, really, as we've already mentioned, for several reasons. First of which was the fact that the Jewish law prohibited uh, trials and sentencing during the feast. That's why Peter wasn't executed right away. He was put in a holding place. And so Peter, actually, he was put into a maximum security holding place, a maximum security prison to await his show trial, and his execution. Elaborate measures were taken to prevent his escape. And, of course, this is going to show the futility of human effort in the face of divine power. Four squads of soldiers, four each, uh, so 16 men were assigned to keep an eye on Peter. No doubt Peter's previous escape from prison was remembered. He was physically chained to two soldiers, and there appeared to be no possibility of his escape. This reminds me of the guards who were placed at the tomb of Jesus. For all practical purposes, Peter was a walking dead man. From the church's point of view, the situation was bleak, maybe even hopeless, or at least felt that way, the unarmed, powerless followers of Jesus were up against the armed power of Rome. Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, 
but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Peter, remember, had two previous imprisonments at the hands of the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, the church in Jerusalem remembers how Peter and John, at their first release, joined them in prayer and acknowledged God's sovereign power. And it's interesting here because we're going to, I think I'm going to be citing this as well because it's what came to mind. What came to their mind was Psalm 2. We sang that this morning. So we read here in Acts 4, And being let go, that's Peter and John, they went to their own companions and reported all, the, uh, all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, and now they're going to quote from Psalm 2, Why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and their rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. In other words, the whole world was gathered together to do whatever your your purpose, your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The church also had to have recalled how the release happened. Acts 5.19, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison door and brought them out. Now in this third, now in this third imprisonment in Acts 12, we read that constant prayer was offered to God for Peter by the church. The world and the church are facing off, each with their own weapons. The power of Herod with his prison and with the sword. And the power of the church with their prayer to a sovereign, almighty God and Savior. Rather than cowering in fear, the church was gathered in the home of Mary, who was the mother of John Mark, to pray. We should notice a few things here. First, this provides an example of the importance of corporate prayer. They didn't just all stay home. That would have been easy to do, to stay in hiding, right? They said, we need to come together. Second, it was constant or earnest prayer. It wasn't just a, a brief Prayer. It was constant prayer. Perhaps they were praying in cycles while people came and went. Third, it was a special occasion for prayer. We should have regular times of prayer, but in this case, there was an urgent situation that demanded immediate and special attention. Fourth, verse 12 tells us that many were gathered together to pray. I ran across this description of this by Charles Spurgeon, and I thought it was good, and I want to share it with you. He said, as soon as Herod had put Peter into prison, the church began to pray. Herod took care that the guards should be sufficient in number to keep good watch over his victim, but the saints of God set their watches too. As in times of war, when two armies lie, uh, lie near each other, they both set their sentries 
So that, so in this case, Herod had his sentries of the night keep watch, and the church had its pickets too. Prayer was made of the church without ceasing as soon as one little company were, uh, were compelled to separate to go to their daily labor. They were relieved by another group. And when some were forced to take rest and sleep, others were ready to take up the blessed work of supplication. Thus both sides were on the alert and the guards were changed both by day and night. It was not hard to foresee which side would win the victory. For truly, unless the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. And when, instead of helping to keep the castle, God sends angels to open doors and gates, then we may be sure that the watchman will wake in vain to fall into a dead slumber. Continually, therefore, the people of God pleaded at his mercy seat, relays of petitioners appeared before the throne. Some mercies are not given except in answer to importunate prayer. There are blessings which, like ripe fruit, drop into your hand the moment you touch the bough. But there are others which require you to shake the tree again and again. I'm thinking of our prayers about Roe v. Wade. Until you make it rock with the vehemence of your exercise, for then only will the fruit fall down. My brethren, we must cultivate importunity in prayer While the sun is shining and when the sun has gone down, still should prayer be kept up and fed with fresh fuel so that it burns fiercely and flames on high like a beacon fire blazing toward heaven. Verse 6, Acts 12. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping. Bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Again, Luke emphasizes that Peter was being held under a maximum security situation. There was no way to escape or be rescued. He's literally chained between two guards with more guards posted. Chrysostom commented, it is beautiful that Paul sings hymns while Peter sleeps. Verses 7 through 12, first verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. Luke has already told us in his gospel and in the early chapters of Acts on 15 other occasions about supernatural angelic beings. And he is emphasizing the same in this story as he records the fact that a light was shining in the prison. So now read, uh, begin, beginning again, the last part of verse 7 through 12. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. And so he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel. He didn't know that it was real but thought that he was seeing a vision. And when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. 
And when Peter had come to himself, he said, I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname is Mark, where many were gathered there praying. We read in Exodus 18.10, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now in Acts 12.11, Peter will say, uh, he'll, as he speaks to the church in just a few minutes, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. The fact that Peter went immediately to Mary's place indicates that this was a well-known gathering place for Christians. This might have been where the large upper room was located, which Mark mentions in his gospel, where Jesus ate the Passover with the twelve just before his arrest and subsequent uh, crucifixion. Clearly a big house because it had an outer gate, and an entrance, and we're told that this is where many were gathered together to pray. Elisha told his servants, you remember when they saw uh, the city of Dothan was surrounded by horses and chariots, he said, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The church was about to learn this lesson in a dramatic way. A lesson that we need to take to heart. So in verses 13 through 18, there's a knock at the door. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, so they said, uh, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren, and he departed and went to another place. Here they are, praying for Peter to be released, and when their prayers are answered, they can't believe it. They thought uh, young Rhoda was imagining things, that there must be some other explanation for this. But Peter makes it clear that the most important thing to know is that the Lord had brought him out of prison. Peter was asleep when the angel nudged him and his chains fell off and they walked past the guards. In fact, remember, Peter thought he was dreaming. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir, verse 18, among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. (laughs) That's kind of an understatement. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and he commanded that they... All 16 of them should be put to death. That's how big a deal this was. Under Roman law, any guard who allowed their charge to escape was liable to the penalty for which the prisoner had been condemned. 
Later, when Paul is imprisoned and the prison gates were opened, we read, and the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. And then now, the rest of the story. Starting in the last part of verse 19 to the end. And he, Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So we have a political, diplomatic meeting that is arranged here. Luke ends this part of the story now then by describing Herod's death. Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, the provincial capital, and stayed there a while. And he'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon on the Phoenician coast. And they now are seeking an audience with him. And for this, they needed an intermediary and had secured the support, I suspect perhaps by a bribe, uh, of Blastus, one of Herod's aides, who asked for peace. They want a peace meeting. And so they're dependent on the king's country for food, especially Galilean corn. And we read in verse 21, so on a day, on a, on a set day, Herod, and Herod's setting all this up, okay? He wants, they're going to come in. Imagine this delegation who's really dependent upon Herod. Herod says, okay, I'll meet with you. Let's do it next Thursday. And Herod sets up the scene. Arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. A speech. And the people kept shouting. No doubt Herod had also assembled all kinds of his supporters there. It was a press conference. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. This is reminiscent of the description of the banquet described in Daniel chapter 5. With Babylon under siege, King Belshazzar threw a party. He publicly displayed his arrogance and blasphemy using the temple vessels for an unholy use in his celebration. Then we read this in Daniel 5. Then the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw part of the hand that wrote, Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. Finally, Daniel is called in to interpret what Belshazzar had seen. Daniel 5.22, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. 
They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Psalm 2, verse 12 says, Kiss the Son, you rulers of the earth, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Josephus The Jewish historian of Rome also described in graphic detail the circumstances surrounding Herod's death at his big gathering. His general outline is the same as Luke's. Both agreed that Herod was in Caesarea at the time. Both mentioned the royal robes that he was wearing, while Josephus adds the detail that his garment was made wholly of silver and of a texture truly wonderful which shone so brightly in the morning sun that the people hailed him as a god. And upon this, Josephus continued, The king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. Luke and Josephus agree, therefore, that God's judgment fell upon him Because he glorified himself instead of God. Josephus describes the situation saying that, quote, A severe pain arose in his belly, which became so violent that he was carried into his palace, where five days later he died. Dr. Rendell Short, who was, a, who was a professor of surgery at Bristol University and wrote a book entitled The Bible and Modern Medicine, stated that a great many people in Asia harbored intestinal worms, probably roundworms, which can form a tight ball and cause acute intestinal obstruction. This may have been the cause of Herod's death. Well, now the exciting part. It's been pretty exciting so far. But the best part, how the story ends. It's striking, in its striking contrast to the death of this tyrant, Luke adds one of his summary verses. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Throughout the book of Acts, Luke equates the growth of the church and God's kingdom with the growth of the word. So in this showdown between two kings and two kingdoms, Jesus won and Herod, for the third time, lost. Psalm 2, again, verses 4 and 5. Remember the kings of the earth, verse 1 and 2, have assembled. Let's break, their, let's break God's bonds. We're not going to let God tell us what to do. We're going to do it our way. Verse 4 and 5, he who sits in the heavens, where is Jesus right now? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them 
in derision. It's a belly laugh. It's a mocking laugh. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is flexing his muscles, arresting and persecuting church leaders. In the end, he is struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod is gloating. And it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphant. King Jesus is powerful to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own dominion. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to thump their chest, to persecute the church, and suppress the spread of the gospel, but they will not endure and last. In the end, pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. God can easily remove the worst of men from their positions of power. Daniel 2.21, he removes kings and he raises up kings. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed to him as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Tyrants who are in power throughout the world today are just as subject to the sovereignty of God as Belshazzar or Herod or any other tyrant was, And by the way, all those behind us are dead. John Calvin said, This memorable story shows as in a mirror the end that awaits the enemies of the church. It also shows how greatly God hates pride. We should always remember the sovereignty of God over the powers of evil. Jesus said to his disciples on the eve of his death, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And I end with this story, because it made me smile. In the 18th century, Voltaire said that within 50 years of his death, the people would have forgotten the name of Christ. The reality is that within 50 years of his death, the Genevan Bible Society was running thousands of copies of the Bible on the presses that had been set up in Voltaire's former home in Geneva. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we too often find ourselves anxious and fearful of the tyrannies around us and and upset by current events. We fail to remember that you are the sovereign, omniscient, and omnipotent ruler of men and kings. Teach us to pray, to trust you, to be bold for your kingdom's sake. And as Psalm 18 declares, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, 
my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Amen. Peter's rescue was a picture of the resurrection and the rescue of the church. The two kingdoms might be clashing. They will have more showdowns, but we already know how the story ends. The Bible is full of historical examples of this. It's also full of future promises. Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24, get, here's the response to this. The 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God saying this. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, they should be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. First John 5. 4 through 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We believe what we just read. We believe the story we had in Acts chapter 12. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then finally... As a word of comfort, as we come to the table, Isaiah 25, 3 and 4, God say, uh, Isaiah says, You, God, will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. For he brings down those who dwell on high. Amen. O Lord, always be our support and strength in this spiritual warfare wherein we have pledged today to engage anew against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have solemnly renounced our sins and expressed our desire above all things to be delivered from them. Be graciously pleased to accept these sincere intentions and desires and to consider our many weaknesses, keep us steadfast in the resolutions we have made against every evil way. When we are frightened or anxious about the people and events around us, prompt us by your Spirit to trust in you and think of you, for there we will find perfect peace. Grant us strength to resist the devil so that he might flee from us, and may we live and die in your favor and obedience. 
and be received into your eternal and glorious kingdom through the merits and mediation of your Son, Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior and Redeemer. Amen. Amen. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. Amen.